very warm welcome to the Posterity Podcast with me, Nigel Dugdale. The Posterity Podcast is brought to you by the Limerick Post, working in association with Limerick City Community Radio. I'm joined in studio today by two people who have really over the last couple of years dedicated so much time and energy into looking at the aspects of Limerick City that make it a place that people want to come and live, to work in and to visit. Ailish Drake and Anne Cronin, you're both very welcome to the studio. Thanks very much, Nigel. Thanks, Nigel. Great to be here. Ailish, I want to start with you. I haven't necessarily introduced you, but just give me a little bit of background for listeners, just to understand who you are and what you're about. Well, I'm an architect in Limerick. Um, I have a practice with my husband, Connor Howrigan, Drake Howrigan Architects. And um, I suppose we, we work in a lot of kind of projects in the community and education sector across the city and, and the county. And um, I suppose, uh, like I, I, I'm married in Limerick. I, I live out in Castle Connell um, and I have two boys that are heading towards teenage years. And um, I suppose over the last few years, I've got involved more and more in the city and I suppose in talking about the city from my point of view as an architect, but also I suppose as, as kind of a proud Limerick person. You were born in Limerick? County Limerick, yeah. Whereabouts? Um, out in the Ballyhara Mountains. So you're <laughs> a, a country farm. girl, and, a become, country girl and you're girl. turned urban. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So and I went to college in Dublin, in Bolton Street in Dublin, lived there for 13 years before we came back um, in 2006. Super. And introduce yourself to the <laughs> listeners who may not have come across you. I'm sure they have. Um, thanks, Nigel. Well, I suppose I wear a few different hats. Um I live in Limerick, have lived in Limerick for the last 28 years, actually. I looked at it earlier before I came in. Um, Originally from Kerry, moved to Limerick in 1994 to go to UL. So I've been here ever since, Um, live here with my children and Martin, my partner, uh, live in the city centre. I've worked in the area of housing, specifically um, social inclusion, health inclusion for the last 20 years. And I'm now um, working freelance with the HSE and with um, a couple of other different projects. So um, change of scenery. I left my job after 17 years last year. So, yeah, it was a big, big leap, but um, one that's been uh, eventful ever since. What do you think after when when you arrived in Limerick for the first time, what what kept you here, do you think? Um, Lots of things. I met some really good friends here and while I moved to Dublin and went to Paris for a short while, I always came back to Limerick and I liked the idea of the small city. Limerick was very easy. It was very easy to live here. It was very easy to go out here. It was very easy to work here and to get around. That really, I suppose, was very attractive to me. Um, You you arrived when? What, What year? Just remind me. 1994. And what was your first experience of Limerick? When you arrived here for the first time, what would your your opinions have been of the place? What did you see? Rather controversially, I suppose, and we might delve into this later on, I was in UL, so I was living out there. So I didn't really come into the city a whole lot at all. Um, I lived out there. Um, you know, everything happened around the campus. And so coming into the city was kind of really never, we, we never really did it. Everything happened out uh, on the campus. Um, and so it was only after I'd finished college that I moved into uh, into town, as it were. And um, it's it's very easy, like I said. I My friends were here, I met Martin, my partner, and so that obviously all impa- impacted on the reason for staying. Ailish, living in the mountains as a young person out in Ballyhowra, your perceptions of the city, was it a place that you'd have visited on, on weekends to come in and do a bit of shopping? What was your early memories of the, of the city centre? Yeah, I mean, we, we I said we lived on the Limerick Cork border, so sometimes we come to Limerick and sometimes we go to Cork. So we knew both cities quite well. Um, and I think I suppose Limerick was probably, we came here more because my mother was from Palace Green. And so we tend to spend a lot of time down there as well. Um, so yeah, we, we used to come in, you know, shopping or going for lunch and that sort of thing. We we really like the city. I, I don't think we spent a huge amount of time in the city. Um, 
And then, of course, the Crescent Shopping Centre. Oh, well, I'm not sure what year it opened. This was in the 1980s, and we would have gone in there as well when it was a much smaller uh, shopping centre. Um, so, like, yeah, I mean, I had a very, very rural upbringing, and it wasn't really until I moved to Dublin when I was 19 that I really experienced living in an urban place. And that was obviously completely new for me, but, but I really liked it, and it was kind of... You know, back in the day when Dublin was, it was quite different, I suppose. But it wasn't cosmopolitan at all. It was like when all the shops closed on a Sunday, and um, so yeah, like I suppose I. What attracted I, you to architecture? Um, I should have known this question would come up. <laughs> I, I wanted to be an architect since I was about fourteen. I think my mother was the first person who suggested it. I was good at art at school. I loved art, uh, but I suppose I was good academically as well. And I think my mother, she she always loved buildings and plans. As she'd be, I remember they had built a bungalow and they'd got an architect to design an extension, which they never built. But she was often have get the plans out and we'd look at them. So I suppose I was interested in buildings, I suppose, in my teens um, when I started building up my portfolio. And then um, we got to go on a school tour to Italy. Um, and like that was amazing and I think it was only afterwards like it was now I suppose I connected that that probably did have a huge influence on me um, in fifth year in school that we went and I think it was a bus we, we actually drove across France and we went to Venice to Florence uh, to Milan and to Rome so um like I, I now, of course, I absolutely love Italy and I and I go back there quite a lot. But I think that seeing those buildings and those cities at that age definitely influenced my choice of, of career. And when was the first time you started getting interested in all things Limerick and, and, and the various aspects? And also just tell people a little bit about the various aspects of Limerick life that you're currently interested in working around. Um, I suppose like many people, you observe and you're involved in things, but not fully maybe until you kind of have children and you have to live differently, navigate how you move around the city differently. And I suppose that really was an eye opener for me at all. Like I'm involved with the Limerick Cycling Campaign and I set up the Limerick Cycle Bus. And whilst I'd always been a cyclist, um, I never really thought about the safety or the dangers of it until I had children and I had to do it with them. Um, so ever since, I suppose, I've had children like Eilish Minor heading toward the, the teenage years now as well. Um, I've been interested in those types of things. I feel very passionately that um, these are political issues and it is only through policy change and, um, you know, pushing things on that type of an agenda that things will change. Um, so I've also gotten involved in politics with the Labour Party in the last, only in the last few years as well, um, to try and affect some change. And I suppose, taking it back again, because I worked in housing and the area of homelessness and social justice for the last 20 years, that kind of dictates the approach that I have as well. So I suppose I, I kind of wanted, when I was seeing how things were developing in housing and how, I suppose, that segregation and that the, the how segregated Limerick is in terms of the areas of disadvantage, that really kind of, I suppose I felt I needed to do something. I worked in that area and I wanted to affect some change. So that kind of led to me, um, you know, getting involved in politics and actually joining a party. I hadn't, you know, it was not something that I had you know, thought I was going to do or I don't, don't come from a family that are, you know, involved in politics or anything like that. So it was just, I suppose, an ambition to try and affect some change in those key areas. Let's look at Limerick today. Um, I remember, I think it was 2013, I attended the launch of the Limerick 2030 Economic and Spatial Strategy. And I remember that day was huge day of course we were given our breakfast with the sausages and the bacon and everyone was there suited and booted and ready to go and then they had this sort of Downing Street declaration signing up at the top where all the great and the good across Limerick came and signed a document and said this is where we're going to go and I remember leaving that day thinking we really are finally coming together. I think the, the city and county council had come together. There was a sense of togetherness. The University of Limerick, LIT, Mary I, Shannon Foynes, all of them were together signing this and saying, but the key thing about it at the time was that there was a sentence that I saw, which was about putting the city at the heart of the region. 
Um, we're now, what, 20, 2013, we're nearly 10 years into that economic and spatial strategy. Are we getting places or do we have a bit to work on? Well, will I, will I go first? <laughs> do Eilish, please. Um, look, I think, I think we are moving in the right direction. So, I mean, it wouldn't be fair to say that we're not. There, are, there is a lot of things happening. And I suppose in, uh, as an architect, I understand that things take time, and they do, and projects take a lo- an awful long time to, d- to deliver. Um, but there are things that have happened in the last 10 years which are real positive things for Limerick. Um, and maybe the focus may not be on where we want it to be on, but that's not to say that they haven't done good things. So things like Troy Studios, like you have a, a burgeoning film industry in Limerick now or starting in Limerick, and there's other projects coming down the line um, in that area. Um, and you know there are things happening in the in the city centre. I mean, like the rugby museum is is nearly done. It's not the local authority that's doing it, but they're still you know facilitating those kind of projects to happen. We've but seen the waterfront development. You the know, waterfront the, development. Uh, absolutely. I mean, we have uh, I suppose one of the best urban walks in the country for for sure. Um, and that's a huge amenity in, in itself. So, so there are there are things happening certainly. And um, but I suppose the thing about the Limit Twenty Thirty Plan is it often focused on we say landmark what we call landmark projects. And these things, you know, it's great to have landmark projects, but it's almost that you need to have the stuff happening in between the landmark projects. You can't f- fix a city by just deciding we're going to do it, we're going to fix it. You actually have to facilitate communities to fix their own city. So I think that's probably the bit that we're missing in a way, that there is a lot of we're going to do this and we're going to do that and it's going to be great, but there isn't enough of what do you think we should do? How can we help you? How can we facilitate you? How can your neighbourhood be we'll use the word regenerated, but, you know, how can buildings be filled? You know, how can we solve vacancy and that sort of thing? So I would say there's an awful lot of that happening in the background and there are people, a lot of really great individuals working, you know, in the local authority and in other companies that are, you know, involved in in this process. But I think we probably need to do a little bit more of the facilitating people to do it for themselves and getting people involved in doing it. And your thoughts? My thoughts are I need to be as positive as possible. I really do because I think sometimes all I do is give out. So I suppose for me, and I was thinking about this before I came in, there are lots of things. Like I said at the start, I'm here 28 years. There's a reason I'm here, you know, that I'm raising my children here. I really love living in Limerick. And even though I grew up in the country, I consider myself, you know, somebody who loves living in the city now and really kind of take up the mantle of kind of urban issues as I see them. Um, and I think, I suppose, the thing are the things that Limerick do really well is our creative, our sports, our arts, our music scene. I mean, they are really, really thriving. The music scene in Limerick now is considered, you know, one of the, the best in the country. Um, and I think it's about supporting that, isn't it? And kind of identifying that and asking the people in the creative industries, well, what is your view on all of this? And really... Having a heart-to-heart conversation, an honest, you know, conversation with people that live in the city and have something to say and that represent us, you know, nationally as well as internationally and asking them what they, what you know, what they feel and how they can be more involved. I think as well, the voluntary sector is really strong here and having worked in it for years myself, um, you know, at community level, at, you know, independent NGO level, it's really, really strong. And I think that's really, really good. <clears throat> um, so that actually kind of leads on then to this idea of activism. And I suppose that's what, you know, I would consider myself um, on many levels as an activist in terms of um, better transport, better living, better housing and things like that. And I think that's really strong in the city. So I think we've all of that going for us. But um, we just, as Ailish said, I think it's the key point. It's about engagement. It's about getting these underrepresented um, groups to contribute more to access, to have access to these kinds of conversations. Because I suppose currently, from where I sit, there are lots of marginalised groups in the city uh, that are isolated from these kinds of conversations. 
I want to just start looking at the the issue of housing because obviously we're in the middle of um we're in the middle of a housing crisis and housing particularly in Limerick City is something that I've started to get interested in and and, and just for listeners the word housing doesn't necessarily always have to relate to a house um Ailish as an architect and Anne as somebody who's worked with novas and worked with homelessness and people from various um different social backgrounds you you'll understand this I was told recently that the reason we're not seeing housing and apartment developments with it, as much as we'd like within the city centre is down to the cost. It's down to the cost of actually getting these things built versus what people can actually um, sell them for. And it starts to make me think that, you know, are we, we're in a situation, and I'm not an economist, but that living and creating a livable space is there for about the ultimate, the developer making the profit. Is there a solution in your mind, Eilish, when you're looking at housing? Because, I mean, we saw the opera site and there was clearly a reason why the local authority decided, well, look, we're going to go down the commercial side for this and we're going to keep housing to a minimal. My dream and my thoughts when opera was being developed was that that would be full. It would be like a Strand Hotel development with mixed use attached to it. So just in relation to housing, what are your thoughts at the minute? Well, first of all, I'm not an economist, so I don't really understand or know, you know, in detail how the whole financial side of it works. But I, I do know when I have to try and keep my own projects on budget. <laughs> but um, no, I mean, I think, like I suppose, if you if you take the opposite for an, as an example, like our local authorities, you know, their job is to provide services and public services and housing is part of that job. So I suppose it's, it's difficult for me to understand why you would take an economic decision based on, you know, based on the economic value of the the site um, in terms of whether or not to put housing there, because your job is to provide housing. And their job is also, um, you know, to to make development plans that work. And we all know that uh, mixed mixed use works and especially in a city centre, mixed use works and um, creating almost a, a whole city block that is predominantly office use and subcultural use um, which practically no housing because as, as far as I know it's a part hotels a part hotel is, is the only housing that's that's in it um, that has a detrimental effect on that block in the city and our city actually isn't that big and there isn't that many blocks there so to take one block out of it in terms of housing seems to be a, an incredible thing to do um for for a city to, for a city to do so um i mean the thing is the offices obviously made economic sense when this was planned what five six years ago but the world has changed in the meantime um the world has changed in the last two years so before they put the first block you know in the ground puts the first shovel in the ground really, they should be taking the opportunity to rethink it. I mean, there, it's not, when we can stand back and say, okay, something has changed and we've decided to look at it again. I don't think anybody should be criticised for doing that. And I think that when, once something is built, it's it's very hard to change it. And especially in the way that that development has been designed, they're quite deep uh, plan office um, buildings that can't be converted easily. Um, so I think that, Personally, I think that they should be taking the opportunity to change that now. Um, I suppose in the wider context of housing, um, I mean, look, we know that we have a big issue with vacancy in the city. And again, it goes back to enabling people to do things for themselves. And a lot of the grant schemes that have been offered in the past haven't really worked um, in terms of getting people in. And, and I suppose what we don't want to see either is like kind of this sort of gentrification. But I suppose it's not gentrification when you're filling buildings that are, are vacant. And if you certainly try to get a mix in that, because the council, the local authority owns some of those buildings as well. So there's no reason why... It's interesting you mentioned mix. gentrification. I was in Belfast um, last week and the one thing I noticed is, first of all, there's a huge, huge amount of investment happening in Belfast, both commercially and from a residential perspective. Mm. Obviously, the university is pretty much in the city centre. Then you have the Docklands, which the Titanic area, which has become both um, a mixed use and you've got that Titanic experience. But what was really interesting, and I went to Belfast with the view of looking at it from a Limerick perspective and going, I looked for the dereliction as well. Mm. And once you go one or two blocks away from where the core city is, you start to get into that. The difference, however, was 
at night. Those derelict areas and, and more rundown areas, because the city's so full of people, they were used as thoroughfares for people to get from one bit to the other. So they never felt like you were going down an empty lane or an empty derelict area. So th- what I'm saying is the city felt alive even when buildings were run down because people lived there. Yeah. And that's what I think we're missing. And on that, you know, we were talking on the housing issue. We in Limerick made mistakes 40, 50 years ago by putting a certain groups of a certain type of social demographic in one location, one corner, another location, another corner then. So we've really four what we're now calling regeneration communities where nothing was put in for them. We're now in a housing crisis and I'm getting a sense that both local authorities and government are basically saying any bit of land that you can find that's owned by you, put some form of housing there because we need to die. Is that running the risk of repeating what we did in the past? It possibly is. And I suppose when you're in a crisis, it's hard not to be in this kind of firefighting mode all the time. There is land we must build. <clears throat> Excuse me. But I suppose housing is the fabric of any community, of any city, and it needs to be designed and it needs to be planned appropriately. And it needs to be inclusive. It needs to be gender inclusive. It needs to be, you know, um, I suppose, socially aware and what we have in Limerick and the thing that concerns me the most and that I don't feel we're affecting kind of, you know, robust change in is a really socially segregated city. And I mean, it's a small city, but there is really entrenched social segregation. And, you know, I think it's been often um, referenced, but the CSO data from 2016 that identified the eight of the 10 unemployment black spots in the country are in Limerick. And the idea that we're not, you know, grasping that mantle and taking that on as a call to arms and saying, right, we are doing something about this. And I personally, I suppose, can't see that. You know, I can't see that being challenged enough. I can't see our decision makers calling that out. Um, and, you know, at the moment we have these pockets of the city, as you say, regeneration areas that are isolated in every aspect, um, whether it's housing, whether it's transport, whether it's access to education, whether it's access to employment. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think at this stage we deserve better. These communities deserve better. They deserve to be represented and they deserve to be able to access. And I wonder, is the conversation, because we are in the housing crisis, it never has been... When I've been listening to regeneration arguments over the last couple of years particularly, I've never heard the social thing spoken of as much. It's always seems to have been how many houses were knocked mm-hmm. versus how many houses were built. They haven't actually really always brought up the issue that there's fundamental issues around unemployment. Mm-hmm. There's fundamental issues around depression and, mm-hmm. and low self-esteem. There's drugs. Uh, you know, they're the things that are, in my mind, regeneration. And the, the the fear is that we will see the success or failure of regeneration based upon how many houses they knocked versus how many they built. Yeah, and I suppose if you have conversations with people that live in those communities, they can be very uncomfortable to hear. Um, and I know, I suppose, for me, having worked at the acute side of it for you know nearly 20 years, working with people who are, as I said, at the extreme side, have experienced homelessness and addiction and things like that, um, there is huge amounts of, um, you know, generational trauma, generational poverty in some of those communities coming from um, addiction, coming from, you know, um, low income experiences, having had very little access to employment, education, things like that. And so, you know, we need, as I said at the outset, we need to really be engaging with these communities. They need to be representative or they need to be represented on some of the uh, the leading agencies that we, we you know that we have in the city. And I suppose you can see there are some community leaders and they're fantastic. And I think you know we need to support that as much as possible. But people on the ground that have had these experiences and live every day in St Mary's Park, which is you know every day we pick up the paper now we see we we see articles referring to St Mary's Park as you know um, crack cocaine supermarket of the country and it's like god almighty what it must be like to live in st mary's park and see that in the front pages of the paper i mean that is i mean i wouldn't like to read that about the place i live 
And I think we're accepting this and, you know, we need to challenge this and we need to be able to look at areas like St. Mary's Park, fantastic, older, deeply cultural part of the city and turn that on its head. And St. Mary's Park has always had, for as long as I'm in Limerick, this negative connotation. And, you know, we don't seem to be making any inroads there. You know, I would love to see when regeneration, as we knew it, when it will come to an end, and I think it's in the next year or two when that funding sort mm-hmm. of will stop, will there ever be an official review of regeneration? And will people who were part of implementing it come to the table and say, well, you know, did you success? Did you succeed? Or will they just allow it be walk away and and we forget about that and we say, don't talk of that one again? Um, so, so it's something to, to look at. And I think that the people... Um, I have this written down here, Cities for People. I was reading a book, you know, Jan Gell, I'm tapping in and out of it at the moment. And it's a fascinating thing. And the concept of cities for people really interests me because people use a space, people live in a space, they socialize in a space, and they interact with each other. And I get a sense with Limerick City, and I want your thoughts on this, that when we're planning Limerick, and, and when I say we, I mean the people who make decisions on our behalf, I don't think that they see the city centre as a place where people should really be. I think they think that they could, well, come six o'clock, they should all leave and go out to the Four Corners and to our leafy suburbs. What are your thoughts? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's, that's a, a good observation of it. Um, the thing is, yeah, the, the one thing you say about the city centre, look, it, it's a thoroughfare for traffic and I've always been, I'm always banging on about, <laughs> about traffic in the city centre. And look, and, and I suppose until we actually grasp that and start to tackle it, we can't move forward in terms of making spaces for people in the city. And um, I don't think, we say we have the LS mats, uh, which is the transfer strategy, the, the kind of revised edition of it coming out in the next few weeks, I believe. Um, and there was nothing in that strategy really that made me think that anything's going to change in the next 20 years. Um, now there are, you know, there are good things in it as well, but we say when we did, do you remember, and we did the, we need space campaign, mm-hmm. which was the campaign we did, uh, year and a half ago, it was the summer 2020. And I suppose what what we found was, you know, when everything shut down with the lockdown, uh, it was really interesting to come in to the city and see that traffic seemed to be moving as it was, if you know what I mean. So it was still lots of cars on the road, lots of, you know, parked cars. I don't know where people were going, but there was nobody... There was nobody on the streets as such, except people, the shops were all closed and then people were all huddled onto the pavements mm-hmm. and there was no space for anybody, but the traffic kept moving. So you're kind of going, well, if everything's shut down, how in God's name was the city still have traffic moving all over it? Because basically it's a thoroughfare. It may as well have been the M50 or the, the Ring Road. So like until the powers that be <laughs> realise this, and it's not about pedestrianisation it's about carving out space for people in the city. It's about uh, carving out space for people to walk and to cycle in the city. And it's for basically pushing all the traffic that doesn't have to be there to, to the ring road. It's built, it's there. You know, there's already a way around. Um, and then also the other thing that I noticed, uh, especially during the, when the shops were closed, is like, Normally when you go in to shop, obviously there's, there's no real public toilets in the city. So mm-hmm. you go into Brown Thomas, you go to the loo there or whatever, um, or you go f- for coffee and you use the, the loo there. So when these things were shut down, there was nowhere to go to the loo. There was nowhere to sit down. There was nowhere you get your takeaway coffee. There was nowhere to sit down and drink it. Um, and as we say, as parents, like if you have young children, uh, you know, People just didn't tend, don't tend to come in to to just hang out in the city because you're constantly watching them for traffic. So I mean, I think that that until this, you know, the penny drops and we actually start that, we can never actually move the the city forward the way it should. Can I just jump in there because I suppose that the issue of the toilets drives me around the bend. I think it's like it's such um, it's such an important issue for women. And at the time, it was kind of given lip service and we got the poor to lose for a few weekends or something like that last summer. And it felt like we had to beg for these poor to lose. And I mean, it was 
the, the height of the summer, we were all out and about. We were so restricted in what we could and couldn't do. And all we could do was walk around and grab a coffee and have a chat here and there. Or, you know, you wanted to get out with your kids and do all of those things. And there seems to be no understanding, which is mad. We're 50% of the population of how important it is to have a toilet, an accessible toilet for women, um, because for ourselves as well as for kids. And like it really, you know, it stunned me that this became such an issue last summer, trying to get. Why do you think it became an issue? Because it felt like, again, we had to kind of say, all right, I'm a woman and because I'm a woman, I need to go to the bathroom more often because I have a period and because I have children and because I have this and that and all these other things. And it's like, God, are these not well known, well, you But know. it's interesting, they'd, they'd pro- I'd love to know how much, I, and I love these, by the way, I love the, the bulbs that were put up along the waterfront, yes. but I can bet your bottom dollar that the cost of buying, getting them done and getting them up and, and running would have been costing a, a fair penny. And yet, paying for a few public toilets to have permanently on the waterfront or in various points of the city just can't be done and it has to be a battle. Yeah, and like, I suppose the lighting, I would argue, is equally as important because it's a safety mechanism for, for especially, you know, when you're out walking at night and things like that. But the toilets are a necessity. Like, it is absolutely are a necessity. Um, and I think, you know, as I said, it kind of, it just really irked me last summer when we kind of felt, you felt like you had to beg for them. And sure, we only got them anywhere for a few weeks. But um, I think the lighting is important. You were talking about that during the week, Nigel, um, as was I, because, um, you know, that whole conversation around how to make our public spaces and places safer for, for women. That's that's a fundamental thing is that, you know, as Ailish said, one of the things we're really, really proud of is our walkways. We're all out and about constantly with dogs and kids and this and that. And they need to be lit up at night and we need to feel safe, you know, that we can actually get out. I recently dark. tweeted about that <laughs> space around down around the castle, just beyond City Hall. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the best part of the city in order to take a photograph. If you wanted to be an Insta-friendly city and market yourselves, that is the location, guys. It's, you can see the bend in the river and you can see the the whole urban centre and you're beside a castle wall. You know, I tweeted it, I took pictures, I took videos, I showed it. For me, as a male who, you know, tends to be not too stressed walking through my city with my dog, that actually, once you turn into that area, becomes quite a threatening space. Mm. A threatening space, A, because people aren't using it, and B, because it's dark. And they seem to just say, no, we're not going to do it. And it's even, it's like that pathway from Artist Key Park into the back of the Hunt Museum, which is a fantastic part of, you know, any walk around the, the three bridges. Um, and it's completely dark. You know, it's too, it's like my kids say, it's too creepy to go in there. And that could be at six o'clock in the evening. Like a very quick and easy, um, you know, safety mechanism would be to have some lighting there going from Artist Key Park into the back of the Hunt Museum. Um, I grew up in Castle Troy. My mum's out there and I watch areas that are now being developed. I look at the public realm and I look at the things that are being um, given there. One thing I can guarantee you you won't have is dark spaces at certain spots because people just will demand that lights will go. Certain politicians will decide, yep, that's where we get it. Is the city underrepresented, city centre, when it comes... Are are the decision makers that make decisions on our behalf, are they the people who leave at five o'clock as well and actually do not know the fundamentals of what happens under their noses in the city centre post 5pm? Well... I suppose you could you could say that to a certain extent, yeah, that's that is true. Um, but I suppose I don't think you need to experience the issue. Well, you do need to, it's it's good to experience an issue, but you it, you don't have to experience an issue to fix an issue. What you have to do is open your ears and listen mm-hmm. to people. And like when I after Ashley Murphy's death, and I had done a piece for the Examiner, and I did some interviews and. The first question was, so should all public space be designed by women? Am I going, well, no, because that's not possible. There isn't enough of us to design it. Um, but if the men and the women designing it actually went out there and asked people what they wanted, then they might understand. And I think, especially where we're talking about existing space, which is 90% of our space existing, there are people who use it, there are people who live there, there are people who go you know, to work there. And we need to actually be ready and open to listen to what people need. So it, 
the as you're, you're talking about the executives or the the people that are empowered to make the decision, what they need to do is say they need to allocate funds to actually find out what has to be done. They need to make somebody responsible because personally, they're not going to do that research themselves. So they just need to set the agenda. So we need the agenda to be set. And that I think that's what what's missing in, say, all our thinking about the city is that there's no overarching idea that something has to be done and somebody is being made responsible for doing that. It's too much of... Um, there are too many documents are just reference, referencing national policy. In fact, if you read anything, read the, the draft development plan. It sounds great. It sounds great. Uh, you know, they know all those policies are there, but there's nobody saying, Ailish, you're responsible now for making sure that, you know, certain places are, you know, are, are working the way they should be working. Uh, Nigel, go out there and, and talk to people in your locality and, and that sort of thing. So we just need somebody to say it has to be done and let's go and do it. Moving on to issues around transport, I mean, we saw just the, the issue that's happened in Galway where they've been told, no, we're not even going to do a trial mm. cycle way through a, a beautiful part of the city. Um, I have a lot of friends who've never been on a bus. They have grew up in the city. They've lived here for 35 years. They have they drove from the day they were 17. They lived. They were driven to the various things that they did before that. Um, they've never been on a bus. A lot of them don't cycle. Um, and most of them are living in the suburbs. So therefore, they see the car as their mode of transport that they're entitled to use. And I had a discussion recently with someone who... Uh, basically gave out to me for the current state of O'Connell Street because now that it's work's being done, getting in from various parts of the city, if you need to go through O'Connell Street, you can't. Um, and I turned to that individual and I said, but hang on a minute, you're coming in from a suburban part. Why would I start designing my city around someone who comes in in a car um, from the suburb? You know, I'm, I'm dedicated to my city centre. Are we ahead of ourselves when we're looking to try and change something in the sense that it seems to me that the winners will always be the mass majority of people who drive cars. I would love to see our city plan for the future because I get a sense that cars won't be as dominant in time. But we're not going to win that battle, are we? Today. I, well, no, it doesn't feel like we're going to win it today. But I think um, we continue to push that agenda. I think... Um, you know, there is a legacy of car dependency in Limerick. There is a legacy of car dependency across the country. And you, you could argue it's a stranglehold on us, really. Like, I mean, I think people have developed. And I, when I say people, I include myself. Like, I mean, and most people I know, we have developed habits over time because it's it's easier, it's safer Um to hop into your car and drive into town if you need to get something or drive through town to the other side if you need to get something. And I suppose bearing in mind that Limerick is a small city, you know, it takes you 15 minutes to get from one side to the other. And that's if you're on a bike. Um, it's a flat city. It's an extremely easy city to walk around and, to, you know, I use active travel to get from A to B. Um, but we have this... Um, I suppose, culture of driving, driving your kids to school, driving to meet our friends, driving to work, all of those things. Where is the parking? Is it free? All of those things. And it will take some time to shift uh, how we think and how we view things. But I suppose the pressure is on and the clock is ticking because, you know, 35 or not 35, 50% of the population of Limerick City are under 35. Um, and quite a significant number of those are young people, um, you know, in the 15 to 25 age bracket. And they are going to demand that we change. Um, but will they or will they learn the habits from the people who've come before them? Because, you know... I don't know. I don't know. Like, I mean, I was in Galway on Sunday protesting. There was a cycle protest because, um, you know, people wanted to to uh, secure that 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 cycle lane for from Galway City to Salt Hill, and four hundred people came out. 
The youngest, I think, was six months and the eldest was 94. So I think there is a sea change there. There is a body of people. It's no longer this niche activity to ask for a cycle aid. That's no longer niche to do that. It's responsible. You know, my 10-year-old wants me to do that because she wants to be able to cycle to school safely. And my neighbour, who might be in his 70s, wants to continue to be able to cycle um, without getting knocked down. And I think... We, the, the sea change is there. We just need the decision makers to kind of come in and to say, right, yes, we're listening to businesses. Yes, we're listening to commerce. But we don't actually live in an economy. We live in a society and we need to actually include everybody and have everybody represented. And that includes young and old, able-bodied, less able-bodied, people from my Ross as well as people from the Ennis Road. Um, and I think, you know, if we had decision making that was more inclusive, I think we'd probably get there faster. Eilish, you introduced the super block idea. And what I'd love you just to explain is the concept that you did a few years back, which was when you superimposed the Crescent Shopping Centre on Limerick City. Just explain that bit first. Yeah, I, I suppose, like there's always, of course, this talk about compar direct comparison between the Crescent Shopping Centre and Limerick City, because Limerick City was always kind of retail hub. Now, obviously that, that might change in time because things are, are changing. But... Um, people feel they have to park right up to where they're going. So if you're going to, I don't know, trying to think pennies, <laughs> you want to park around the block or whatever, or that if you're going to O'Mahony's for the school books, I've done that myself, mm, yeah. where like going, how will I carry my school books to the car? You want to park as close as possible. But then I superimposed, I dropped the plan of the Crescent Shopping Centre on top of the plan of the city centre. And what I discovered was that if you took in the, the car park of the, the Crescent Shopping Centre, they're basically practically the same size. So the same width. So if I go out to the Crescent and I park in the car park and I walk into the shopping centre, and I have to go from one end of the shopping centre to the other, I, I could have parked up in Mallow Street and went down to Penny's to get, you know, what I was getting. So I think that there's kind of people imagine that the walking distances are much bigger than they are. It only takes three minutes to walk a block. Am I right? Or is it one and a half minutes to walk a block? Um, but I think from one end of the super block that, that I had looked at, it was only six minutes from one side to the other. So like, and of course, we're very well served by par car parks already. So you could actually... The only issue you're really delving into there is the weather. I mean, you know, they say Crescent is, is enclosed versus outside, but, you know, that's... Yeah, and I think actually that we really have to get over ourselves yeah. about the weather. weather. And, and I don't think 100%. we should be really covering streets or anything like that. Mm. I think that we, we just need to... Well, on that, I yeah. in Belfast last week, yeah. <laughs> I did visit Victoria Square, and I don't know if you've ever been. No, I should It is the yeah. most stunningly designed, beautiful piece of retail architecture yeah, that I've ever encountered. First of all, it looks amazing. And secondly, there's, it is roofed, but you don't even know it's roofed. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you look up and it's going right through a core. If you can imagine Cruises Street quadrupled in size and you really are walking through the fabric of the city centre, but you're, it's, it's just magic. Look it up for, for listeners. But, I look, but look I it suppose up online. the thing is, though, that how long are we going to have retail in the city centre. Mm. And should we not be kind of going, okay, yeah, covered retail square, that, that's great, it's of its time. But that's not going to happen for much longer, really. I mean, yeah, we're always going to have like small, hopefully, small businesses and artists and shops. And, you know, like we say, for example, Ennis is thriving with yeah. small shops and boutiques and all sorts of things. But the, the kind of the retail as we've known it until now and with department stores, I mean, actually in the development plan, it calls up Brown Thomas, Pennies and Duns as sort of anchor tenants for the for the city. But like we can't be so short sighted to kind of pin our hopes on private enterprise in the city because it may not be there. Like for myself, for example, I had to get a jacket a coat there before Christmas and I went out to the Crescent Shopping Centre to get it and uh, tried every shop and I came home and I ordered it online. You know, and what you call it, the, and, and I think I've done that more than once. So I, I absolutely hate shopping. And I think and I, I might come back to that. Yeah. The, the, the super block thing, but yeah. though, if you can just explain to listeners the idea that they, it, it, they've been seen in Barcelona, but just yeah. explain how a super block works, because it might blow people away to think that they might get off their car, out of their car in Wickham Street and walk to Roche Street. And, and, you know, that might blow them away, but just explain how it works. Yeah, so... I, I nearly want to see a mental map of the city now. But <laughs> so the idea was that you took, 
a number of blocks together and you called it a super block. So you're talking about from William Street to Mallow Street and from Parnell Street to Henry Street. And within that area, you basically don't have any cars driving through. Now, the idea wasn't that you basically pedestrianise it. The idea is that you take off through traffic. Uh, nobody drives in unless they absolutely have to go. So people had to ask questions about, oh, what if you have disability or what if you need to drop your mum to the doctor or whatever. So you can still access it, you know, in a limited way and deliveries can get in and limited way but predominantly for the main part of the day you would have no cars but you would still keep the streets as they are so people cycling uh you know and and obviously people walking on the pavement so i don't think it would change the fabric of the city but it would mean then that you carve out a huge amount more public space and um it would be cheap to do because you could do it actually overnight. So for instance on Roche Street rather than having two and a half big lanes running down yeah. it you might only need the one because yes. it's meandering traffic and therefore yeah. the footpaths become wider yeah. people get to use it more kids yeah. who might live nearby can actually go out in the street yes. and be happier. And and as part of it as well I think I had I had identified a couple of areas where you could have a public space like we have no really great public space in the city and actually as part of that Limerick 2030 plan there was to be a public space um, down there near Pennies uh, when, when the idea was to, to, to knock Arthur's, Arthur's key, key wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, so, like, even though they're doing lots of other things that are in 2030, they're not doing a public space. And of course, you know, that we did the big battle for the public space on O'Connell Street um, when, when they were doing O'Connell Street. And I actually still think outside the Rugby Museum on that block, which is the block between Roche Street and Cecil Street, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, that you could make that a, a public space of the city because it's easy to get traffic around that. Um, so I think look it's it's not about absolutely cutting out cars completely because actually a friend of mine Julia Valone who you probably know of she's an architect down in Clannacilty or down in Cork and she's doing great work in Clannacilty and now she's working um, doing a lot of work in Cove she had said to me about O'Connell Street well you know she said it's good to have some cars on O'Connell Street at night time because it gives you passive surveillance it makes the street safer um, and certainly like you know I mean I drove in here tonight I would have liked I would you know I close to where we are and I would be always conscious at night time if I am driving and where do I park and that sort of thing. So it's not that we're just saying a blanket, you know, pedestrianisation. It's just reducing cars. And if, if retail isn't to be the future and it's looking very likely, I mean, I, I do think that retail will never disappear, right? Mm-hmm. But I think it's going to become smaller. I think we'll start looking at shop windows as, as displays for online presence, etc, etc. But if retail is no longer the dominant force within a city and we know that's coming, how could Limerick plan to capture the fact that it's a small, compact, small little units living above the shop? What are your thoughts on that? I don't know. It's hard to know where to start. I think, you know, it's back to the point that Ailish just made around, you know, we're not, it's not that you kind of don't want cars in the city. Of course you do for a variety of reasons. But making space for other modes means that, you, you know, people that need to use their cars to get into the city can do so quicker. They're not, you know, there's less congestion, there's less um, traffic, then there's less air pollution. All of those things are, are, are beneficial. But I think the city needs to be, I suppose, more resilient, more shockproof. We need to be able to build whatever we're building now to ensure that for generations to come, the city is still here. And I think hanging our hat on anchor tenants like Ailish referred to, like Duns and Pennies and BTs. I mean, we need to be able to withstand the day that BTs could turn around and say, we're gone. And or what it, do we do if that happens? If that happens. And if that's, that, you, you know, know. That's, been, that's been on the cards for it years has, in the worry. Yeah. And the worst of it as well, by, by the way, is that waterfront. I'm always fascinated by this. The, 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 the quayside from, I suppose, the new bridge, Shannon Bridge, down to Sarsfield Bridge, that's called a shared space. Yeah. Right? Now, if you will see it when you're entering into it, now, to me, a shared space is that I'm entitled to walk on the road and a car will meander its way past me. Mm, well, best to look. How, well, yeah. However, the reason... And the only reason that shared space isn't working and that traffic can use it the way it currently does was because, from what I understand, was a large retailer needing to have deliveries. 
But did anybody actually come out and tell people what a shared space was? Because I think just putting up a sign or in a document saying that this street is a shared space doesn't mean that somebody driving into town for whatever reason to go to school or to go to work knows that that's a shared space. Um, And I suppose if you were to go down there and experience it, I'd say 95% of people driving their cars don't realize what a shared space is because you have to wait like you do on every other street on the footpath for space to go or for a pedestrian crossing or green light. Um, So I think in terms of the city and future-proofing it, we need to, and I suppose, look, there's there's lots of people saying this, we need to build housing in the city. That's a fundamental. And this idea that all of the housing has gone out to Mungret or to wherever it is outside of the city is just, it's lost, like it's a lost cause. We need to have housing in the city centre. That means we will have families living in the city centre. That means we'll have, you know, more services um, built and opened for young people, for kids. Um, And we need to have... And I suppose it's a, it's a two-pronged approach because we've so much dereliction and vacancy that you spoke about earlier. That it's a very, I mean, it's a no-brainer to turn that around as a positive and to, to develop those buildings for people to live in. Someone said to me recently that seeing Dublin in its current guise and the way it's, it's seeming to just, it, the days that I lived there certainly don't seem touchable anymore. Um we could potentially attract a huge cohort of people working and living in Dublin at the moment who either want to move home or see Limerick and the west of Ireland, by the way, that we're, we're in touching distance of, of surfing and mm-hmm. golf clubs. Mm-hmm. We could be a place that attracts them. And a lot of these young people, they don't want suburban picket fenced living. They want urban living. Mm. And if we got our act together, you know, I think we could attract a a certain demographic and a certain population to to base themselves here. We don't seem to be doing that at the moment. Cleves, I want to touch on just Cleves. For the pair of you, if you both, you as an architect and you as someone who wants a city to be a livable, movable, shakeable space, um, what would your ideal Cleves master plan be? (laughs) That is like a question that's way too big. (laughs) How long do we have? But the aspects that you think should definitely be there. Well, I suppose, I mean, like it's a great site. It's mm-hmm. got great buildings on it. It has the chimney. It's iconic. I What I would like to see them doing is working with the buildings that are there and then obviously infilling with what they need. I definitely think they need residential there. Uh, they also could do with community spaces and, we say, cultural spaces. But again, I think it kind of goes back to like... Um, you know, I, like, I mean, because there are plans. I, just can't, I can't remember if the plans have been put out now, but there are plans on the wall. I think later on this year they will yeah. do. They're on the yeah. wall, like the 95 Thesis, Martin yeah. Luther yeah. nailing yeah. them too. But that was just an initial sort of wink yeah. and a nudge. Lads, wait till you see what's coming. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, but I think, again, like, you shouldn't really be going out to get a master plan done. Like, we have had a consultation, but we do consultations so badly in, in, in Ireland in general, not just in Limerick. It's not really about you know, Eilish coming on and deciding what she thinks is a great thing for a Cleve site and doing up a draw and then saying, Nigel, do you like it? Or Anne, have you any comment on it? It's about going, okay, we have this great site, you know, let's do open days, let's bring people, let's hand over a building to a community group for six months, see what they do with it. Let's, um, let's do events and say, you know, whatever you want to do, Nigel, if you want to do a, an event down in Cleves, you know, come up an idea, here's some funding, uh, off you go, we'll see what happens. So these kind of projects, like they're such huge projects for the city and so important for the city. You need to get community buy-in. You need to get buy-in from the citizens of the city. So I would, what I would just love to see is just somebody going out there and putting a huge amount of effort into the community engagement and participation. These kind of idea of these co-design workshops, but allowing people to take over the space and actually do something with it. Um, Of course, you need to have other things there as well. But in order to animate the space, you actually have to get people on board and, uh, you know, just, you know, architects are great, but they don't have all the answers. (laughs) It feels like sometimes we're afraid to make these changes, to make these bold moves. And I think... You know, and this is no slight on the local authority because I I do think there are probably people in there that have some great ideas about Cleves, but it feels like it's too big. 
and that, you know, that they're afraid to make the wrong move. Whereas I would encourage people to make the wrong move because sometimes that's the only way that we can we can learn and kind of, you know, evaluate and see what works. And I think, as Ayler said, like the space is so big, it needs to be multi-purpose. It needs to be able to deliver for, you know, for lots of different groups in the city. And we'll only ever really kind of find that out if we say, right, we're going to have some ambition. We're going to go in. We're going to see what we can deliver here. It's a fabulous site in the city centre. Most cities would bite their arm off to have that kind of space with a blank canvas in terms of what they can do there. I mean, the creative industry can be down there. And in my view, I think the creative um, industry should lead what happens in Cleves. And this idea of a conference centre needs to be absolutely knocked on the head. And it needs to be an organic, multi-purpose site. It's so big. We can have housing there. We could have housing for older people there. We could have housing for young families there, as well as all of the other bits and pieces that can happen. And I think we've all shared at different times similar sites in Vienna or in Berlin or wherever, where they've kind of had, you know, I saw one of them where they kind of put a, a cycling, um, you know, one of those kind of, uh, anyway, was, yeah, a velodrome, exactly, into a, a site like Cleves. And they just let loose and had fun. I think the mixed use is thing. And I think I mean, even a conference, I, I can see a conference centre being part of Cleves, which, you know, I see it as being some, you know, I've seen it in cities where there's such mixed use there. It's living and breathing 24 7. But so, not Limerick's idea of a conference centre. I get I that. I think, yeah, I, I think, they, I think they're thinking in a different way. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's, what's very interesting through all of this conversation is coming back to people and my biggest worry um, across the board when decisions are made in America they're being made by people who don't fundamentally think understand that the answer is people where we haven't increased our population in the city centre we've seen 2030 building this mongrel development and we're seeing talk of my Ross lands being opened up now where I grew up in Castle Troy is thriving the city centre hasn't had that and and it really worries me because I worry that that, that the city centre just isn't seen as being an attractive space by our decision makers um and so the final question to both of you, this is the Posterity Podcast, and I often ask this, this interview hopefully will go up onto the internet and it'll, it'll be there for forever. Um, after you're gone, after I'm gone, and I hope it's not for many, many years, the legacy that A, you leave, or that the things that you're working towards now that you would like to see for your kids and grandkids... For me, I suppose, you know, a healthier city all around, a healthier city in terms of space for people to move about in ways that, you know, um, promote a better environment, promote better well-being, better mental health. Um, so I'd like to see the city become a greener city. Um, I'd like to see these pockets of neglected space that we have throughout our city and our county, because it's a huge issue in the county as well. Um, I'd like to see those neglected spaces used um, you know, for people. And I think if we've learned anything from COVID, it's that we actually really kind of you know, we need these spaces. We need outdoor space, you know, every bit as much as we need a, a solid place to live. And I think, um, especially for older people. So I think an ambition to kind of have a greener city, a more fair and equitable city, because I suppose what runs alongside sustainability is just and fairness. And I think if we were able to do that, um, or if I had in any way, shape or form contributed to doing something like that, I'd be pretty happy. Um, and not to be afraid, I suppose, to push the activist agenda either. I think sometimes, you know, I remember sometime, I remember one time somebody called me an activist and somebody came to my defense on Twitter and I was like, no, 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 hang on a second. I don't mind being called an activist. Um, to get away from this idea that if you, you know, are involved in a campaign or if you're, you know, pushing for something that, oh God, she's a bit militant or, you know, to push away from that, like it, it is, we're all behoven to kind of, you know, be active around making our community and our, where we live better. Um, so yeah, those kinds of things, I guess. Eilish. Yeah, I mean, all of, all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know it's, it's hard to know really. I mean, like I suppose all of the things we spoke about, I'd, I'd love to be able, you know, to feel that in 20 years time, even that, that these things would happen because, 
you know, I've been looking at, you know, the same kind of issues for the last well, six or seven or, you know, like how long is it since I moved back down to Limerick? 15 years. And, you know, th- there's been very little change, really. And I suppose I'd like us to kind of move away from the big grand plans and into kind of a more... Uh, what would you say, a sort of a more measured bit by bit infill approach almost that, you know, that it's not just about, you know, tactile rather than full on. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I think, you know, like when we look at things like the regeneration, I mean, you're talking about it earlier and sometimes I feel the problem with that project was that the ideas were too big to begin with and that we just need to bring it back down to kind of, again, back down to people and kind of really, I would just love to see a city where communities in Limerick felt really empowered to do stuff for, the, for themselves and um, that they felt really part of the decision making for the for the city. So that, that's what I'd like to see. Well, look, I just want to thank you both for coming into the studio and to just say you are appreciated. The work that the work that you do, <laughs> oh, it doesn't thanks, go unnoticed. Nigel. And um, I hope that, you know, the stuff that you're talking about, the stuff that we're all passionate about, I hope it does come to pass in time. And I know that we can be critical and sometimes we can be seen as overly critical and it's not. It's actually having a passion and a belief that something good can happen here. Um, and sometimes having voices outside the big decision-making process is is worthwhile. And I think that you're, um, you're doing a great job. So listen, Anne and Ailish, thank you so much for joining me on the Posterity Podcast and the best of luck, G. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks Nigel. Much, Nigel. You've been listening to the Posterity Podcast with me, Nigel Dugdale, produced by the Limerick Post in association with Limerick City Community Radio. Theme tune composed by David Blake and performed by the Brad Pitt Light Orchestra. If you want to get in touch with me or suggest any future guests, you can contact me directly on Twitter at Limerick City Biz or you can contact the Limerick Post at Limerick Post. Post.